Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Um, all right, should we do this? Yeah, let's do it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and with Vox's Ella Nilsson. Um, she joined Jane and I right before the election to talk about the Senate races that were in play. Um, those races wound up going, uh, I would say, considerably less well for Democrats than they had hoped or anticipated based on the polls. Uh, but we're now left with a situation in which there are 50 Senate seats held by Republicans, 48 held by Democrats and their uh, New England independent allies, and two races outstanding in uh, the, the state of Georgia. So we're going to we're going to talk about that. What's at stake here seems pretty high to me. I mean, if you 50 50 Senate, Kamala Harris breaks the tie. And on the most basic level, that means that like normal Joe Biden appointees will just get confirmed. There might be somebody Joe Manchin has a problem with, but like you would just expect that a well-qualified nominee without a scandal will be confirmed. Whereas Mitch McConnell hasn't really, you know, he hasn't like broken out his his cocaine Mitch or Grim Reaper memes yet. But if you have a 52-48 Senate, it, it's like really not clear to me like how the government is going to function at all. Right. Like Joe Biden's agenda and any hope for some sort of bold agenda from Democrats is, I mean, even with a 50-50 Senate is not looking great because you it's a it's a caucus with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and other very moderate members. But yeah, I mean, given how the last few years of McConnell as Senate majority leader have gone, there's like no like real hope, I feel like, in the future for for cabinet appointees to sail through smoothly. You know, I'm, I'm struck by a contrast between how progressives and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans address these kinds of things, right? So in the waning weeks of the 2020 campaign, every place, like including the Weeds podcast, uh, Vox.com, every progressive site I read, every progressive Twitter feed was full of very explicit statements about like, if we win this thing, like we're making new states, we're ending the filibuster, maybe we'll pack the court. Like there was this very high profile debate about 
the sort of extreme procedural measures, like like the hardball tactics the Democrats would unleash. I don't Most see of which that. Were, and like that's not and this is not irrelevant here, focused on correcting the geographic bias of the United States Senate. Yes, yeah. Where, where it's like, I don't see I mean, I can't say that I, I read every conservative article or every conservative Twitter feed, but like I don't see people saying, oh, if um, Leffler and Purdue win, we're going to block all of Biden's cabinet nominees. We're going to make sure that zero judges are confirmed. Right. And it's it's interesting because people will say on the left is like, well, you know, like, how can you discipline people? But like, I think it would be it would be really bad for Purdue and Leffler if the normal person's understanding of this election was that if Republicans win, we will have a rolling constitutional crisis. And if Democrats win, there will be very tepid legislation. But it's not out there like that. Like they are all they're, they're doing this weird thing about the vote count and the fraud. But like they're not saying the plan is to win these races and then make sure that like there is no EPA. But I think that's what's at stake here. It would not be surprising to me if those conversations aren't happening explicitly. I mean, I think the question facing Senate Republicans, if they do get the majority, and this is to a certain extent putting the cart before the horse, even to discuss this before we actually talk about the races, but like there is a certain question of do you attempt to pick your battles not for like you know, not because you have any desire to be conciliatory toward Joe Biden, but just because in a world where you go nuclear on all cabinet appointees, the Biden administration is more likely to say, well, we'll take the same approach to the Federal Vacancies Reform Act that the Trump administration did and just like ignore it to to a large extent and we'll appoint whomever we want. Or like, do you play enough ball that they're actually going to take your opinions into consideration in appointing people. Matt, I'm sure that your answer to that would be that the people who Joe Biden is going to want to appoint to cabinet positions are likely to be fairly moderate anyway. Uh, but it's not clear that Senate Republicans themselves would agree with that at this point, right? It does appear that a lot of Republican elected officials genuinely do believe that the Biden administration is going to be run by radical leftists. And so there would be, you know, there there would be a certain consideration there. I think that that's kind of illustrative of a bigger problem that would happen, which is that the Biden administration is already going to be torn between a characterological desire to go high and play by the rules and be statesmanlike, and the reality that it is going to be harder for them to get things done if they do not play hardball. And dealing with a Republican Senate majority might actually push them to be more aggressive on the hardball stuff earlier in an administration if it becomes clear that there is absolutely no way that they're going to be able to work with Congress. Well, I would just point out like a couple of things on that front. First of all, I, yeah, I saw like an Axios report a couple of weeks ago that was sort of like Mitch McConnell's, you know, Republican led Senate might be the death knell for progressives hope of, you know, getting a number of progressive folks in Biden's cabinet. And my first thought was, well, maybe that's kind of that Joe Biden doesn't really care about that. Right. It's like people he would want in his cabinet anyway are the, you know, the more moderate folks. So I don't know about that. But th then the other thing, too, is like we have to see how this dynamic shakes out because certainly, you know, McConnell with Obama as president just, you know, stonewalled everything. But McConnell and Biden do have sort of like this longer personal relationship and, and working relationship from their many years spent in the Senate together. You know, Biden obviously made 
a huge part of his pitch uh, as president to, to sort of go back to these days of bipartisan work in the Senate, even though there it's an open question if that Senate is still is still exists. Um, but I, I do I, I do think it's too early yet to see how McConnell and Biden work together themselves um, to 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 know exactly what McConnell's tactics are going to be. But I would. I guess I would encourage people to think of a of a distinction between different kinds of jobs, right? So, you know, everybody thinks Biden will appoint uh, Michelle Flournoy to be defense secretary. And Republicans don't have a big problem with Michelle Flournoy. Uh, she's a relatively moderate Democrat. Also, Republicans want the military to exist. Like, they, they believe in that. Um, in a lot of ways, Biden and McConnell are probably closer on national security, military affairs issues than Trump and McConnell were. So that's like no problem. She'll sail through. Treasury, I think the leading contender was probably Lael Brainerd all along. Uh, people on the left have some problems with her. Again, like Mitch McConnell doesn't want the stock market to crash and like corporate America to be wailing. So a moderate Treasury secretary, fine. And Biden is probably even happy to tell people on the left, like, oh, I would have loved to put Liz Warren up, but I just couldn't, right? Because like, would he have loved to? Probably not. But then you have like, the EPA, you have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you have the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, you have all these agencies that Republicans are not going to mind if they just sort of don't exist. Like if the work of rebuilding the demoralized staff of an agency with a traditional progressive mission that was kneecapped by the Trump administration just like doesn't get done because you don't have a confirmed secretary, like that's fine for Mitch McConnell. And back in 2015, or even before that, right, what part of what drove Harry Reid to eliminate filibusters for confirmations is that Senate Republicans said that they wouldn't confirm anybody to run the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They wouldn't confirm any judges to the D.C. Circuit. And I feel like those kind of tactics are going to come back, except this time there won't be like a hardball workaround necessarily. And then again, like if conservatives played this game the way progressives do, like they wouldn't be able to stop themselves from talking about this. And like we'd be on CNN all the time with like the talking heads being like, should Mitch McConnell just stonewall all appointees at regulatory agencies so that we have no protection against pollution? And we're like not doing, I don't know. I, I, I'm impressed by their ability to kind of like hide the ball on this and frame the campaign around, you know, like Raphael Warnock and the radical left rather than is there a functioning government? I don't know. I, I, think that this is just another case of everyone's the victim of their own story and that it's not that surprising <laughs> that people are more concerned about the consequences of an election if their side loses than they are thinking about the consequences if their side wins. Like, I think it's really only in the last weeks of the presidential campaign when progressives and Democrats even started to accept that it was more likely than not that Joe Biden would win and that any kind of measuring the drapes conversation about ending the filibuster and all that kind of thing was the democratic equivalent of irrational exuberance. Well, actually, let me let me ask as what what's the situation in Georgia? Why, why are we having these? Why are we <laughs> yes. having these runoffs at all? Like what's what's going on? 
Yeah. So right now we have a double header for Senate runoffs in Georgia. And as as we have sort of been teeing this up here, it is, you know, Democrats absolute last hope to potentially flip the Senate after a few of the races that I think, you know, Democratic operatives thought would be easier to win, like Maine and North Carolina did not pan out. <laughs> so, I mean, Georgia's really interesting here. Biden won it very narrowly on the presidential level. Um, I think, you know, Georgia, you could argue, argue that Georgia and Arizona were probably the the two states in, in Sunbelt areas that that flipped for the first time in decades at the presidential level. Um, it's, you know, been a long time coming with demographic change and things like that. But um, certainly there's an argument to be made that suburbs in in both states and and folks, especially white college educated suburbanites who just didn't like Trump, combined with a more diverse electorate, um, black predominantly Black voters in Georgia and predominantly Latino voters in Arizona um, kind of created this perfect storm to flip at the presidential level. So the question now remains, and I don't think anybody is going to know for sure until January 5th, is, is that trend going to continue for Senate candidates? Georgia runoffs in the past, Democrats have had a very bad track record. I think the last Senate one was 2008, where the Democratic candidate lost pretty badly. And basically, you know, I think that the biggest question here is, I mean, the biggest question is turnout, obviously, and presidential. It's it's almost certainly not going to be as high as it was, you know, for for Biden and Trump um, driving their respective bases and, and other swing voters in the presidential. But the question is, you know, which side can get more of their voters to turn out for a runoff election? And I think the other big question, especially for Democrats, is do these white suburbanites who, you know, one operative called Romney Republicans, you know, former moderate Republicans who like low taxes, but don't like Trump, um, who might have voted for Biden in the presidential, do they continue to stick it to the GOP and vote in Ossoff and Warnock? Or do they decide that they're fine with Purdue and Leffler and don't want to hand, you know, Democrats unified control of Congress and the White House. And, uh, you know, I sort of think that that the second option is the more likely scenario. But um, there are a lot of really interesting dynamics wrapped up in these races. And I, I yeah, it's 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 a fascinating time. So it seems like your assessment of the race is going to depend on why you think Georgia went blue in 2020 to begin with, right? Uh, in the presidential election. Yeah. And I'd love to hear you kind of talk through what your reporting has led you to believe on this, because, it, you know, in 2016, Georgia was seen as a gettable state for Democrats, maybe not in 2016, but certainly in like future cycles because of this, like, we're going to mobilize the base strategy. Stacey Abrams really came to prominence even before her gubernatorial run, encouraging Democrats to invest in expanding voter registration, expanding mobilization to, like, historically underserved communities in the hopes of creating a, you know, progressive electoral majority that didn't require them to be backtacking to white moderates all the time. And now it seems to a certain extent, like, given what you're saying about these Romney Republicans, that there's an argument to be made that when Georgia 
actually did vote for a Democrat for president, it was because of the exact same white moderate voters that the Stacey Abrams strategy was supposed to do an end run around needing in the Democratic coalition, which obviously has very different stakes for this runoff and also for, you know, Democrats' future electoral strategy and coalition building. So how do you kind of reconcile those two things? Yeah, I mean, folks that I've been talking to say, like, obviously, you you need both, right? Like, you need a fired up base of of black voters and and voters of color, and you also need these sort of swing white moderates. And especially, I think I would argue that this that this trend in the suburbs is being driven by um, predominantly women. There are men too, but this is just something that we've seen as a continuation. So, so yeah, so there are a couple of different things. I mean, on the Stacey Abrams strategy, like that certainly can't be underestimated. And Stacey Abrams and other groups um, driven by particularly like women of color and black women, you know, doing the work to register folks and make voting easier for people. There's also, you know, Georgia has um, automatic voter registration through the DMV, which is something that was passed in 2016. And that also can't be underestimated for, you know, a vehicle to to register more folks and, and get more folks uh, able to vote. There's also, I mean, just Metro Atlanta is is just a fascinating part of this story. It's a place that has been, you know, growing very fast. I think I was looking at some stats. It's it's home to six million people as of 2019. Seven hundred and thirty four thousand people moved there from 2010 to 2019. There are a lot of Fortune 500 companies. It's just like a desirable place to move to and live. Um, and so that, you know, that can't be separated from the story of like why Georgia is bluing and why why it's getting more favorable for Democrats. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's interesting. I mean, a lot of folks have sort of talked about Ossoff's 2017 congressional race and and that special election as kind of being one of the first things that mobilized white suburban women in particular and and certainly, you know, um, black voters as well. But I think that this was post-Trump. I mean, certainly like the Trump fatigue hadn't set in as much, but it, it kind of spurred this backlash among white suburbanites who didn't like, you know, just it just didn't like Trump's, you know, racism, sexism, things that he would say about women. Um, and and I think that, you know, uh, people that that I've talked to said that that really kind of became the central kind of way that people expressed their frustration with Trump early on. And it was kind of, you know, even though Ossoff ultimately lost that race, it was kind of an early sign of, of things to come um, and really kind of became a way for people to get organized early on. So uh, Nate, Nate Cohn at, at The New York Times was able to do a sort of detailed look at the at the Georgia electorate this morning. It's one of the first states that we have this complete data for. And it's it's a little bit of a nuanced story because like you, you can get it wrong, but it's like black turnout went up in Georgia. So the strategy to mobilize black voters succeeded, but white turnout went up by more. So the black share of the electorate declined a little from where it was in 2018. Uh, it was lower than it was in 2016, 2014, you know, and in sort of any any recent election. So you wouldn't say the reason Biden won was that black voters were mobilized because they were actually less mobilized than white voters. But then you can flip it again and you can say, well, if raw black turnout had stayed where it had been, 
then the black share of the electorate would have dropped even more and Biden would have lost. So it was mobilizing black voters, you know, which is just to say, like, you can sort of peel this onion of like what caused what in many, many, many different ways. But at least like at a high level, we did not see a relative surge in black turnout in Georgia. We saw, you know, what what Ella was saying, which is that seemingly white people, um, although the suburbs of Atlanta are fairly diverse, but it seems like white suburbanites who had previously been solidly Republican kind of had this break. And that's why I, I was emphasizing the sort of interpretive stakes, right? Because if you think about this election as, well, if Purdue and Leffler win, we're going to have divided government and bipartisanship versus if Asaf and Warnock win, we're going to have the progressive agenda unleashed. To me, that suggests to like a Romney-Biden switcher, I should vote Republican. Whereas if you see the stakes here as being, if the Democrats win, we're going to have a functioning government, but any legislation is going to have to be substantially bipartisan versus if Republicans win, we're going to have sort of ongoing constitutional crisis. Like that's a much more compelling argument to a kind of swing electorate um, and I and I think it's more accurate. Like it, it doesn't seem to me that a fifty fifty Democratic Senate is gonna like uncork a ton of of ambitious bills. But it's also hard. I feel like that's a tough. We should take a break and and talk about this. But like, it's hard for me to imagine like John Ossoff running an ad talking about how little um, he's going to get done in a fifty fifty Senate, but he will be able to stave off total crisis like that's a it's a difficult needle to thread so let's take a break support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the harris school of public policy with the constant news cycle there's a lot of noise out there opinions are plastered all over social media pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. 
So, Elmo, who who are these guys? Um, Asaf, as, as as you mentioned, w- was one of the the earliest characters in uh, the Trump politics show. Um, here for a comeback, um, and and who who is who is Raphael Warnock? Like, what what is going on? How did these these two guys come to be the the hinge point of American politics? Yeah, so Raphael Warnock is the senior pastor at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a storied church um, in Atlanta. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, was was a pastor there um, back in the '60s, and so it it has this very you know storied history of of civil rights in the South. Um, and yeah, I mean Warnock Warnock is an interesting character. I mean he is now you know. Obviously, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina did not win his race. So, you know, he is is the lone black candidate that's that still has a chance um, to, to make it into the Senate. It's interesting. Like I I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago who basically said that Warnock's favorability ratings are or in polls, he has the, the highest favorability thus far. And that could basically be sort of a symptom of Kelly Loeffler basically having to run against fellow Republican Doug Collins in um, the, the special election thus far. She had a pretty, you know, serious primary challenge from the right. Leffler herself was appointed by Republican Governor Brian Kemp to sort of appeal to this suburban white woman cohort that we have been talking about. But during her race with Collins, she kind of took this abrupt hard right turn because Collins obviously is one of, you know, he's a Trump loyalist in the House. Um, and so Leffler got an endorsement from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the congresswoman from Georgia, who, uh, you know, espouses QAnon beliefs. She put out this ad uh, saying that she was more conservative than Attila the Hun. There was a, there was a lot of stuff going on. Republicans are trying to to basically define Warnock as, as you know, a, a radical, essentially. There's there have been a lot of ads ads um, with Jeremiah Wright and, you know, a lot of things saying that that Warnock is radical. They've been trying to, you know, they've been painting John Ossoff as a socialist. I feel like uh, all of the ads that I get from Purdue's press team are just socialist John Ossoff. So I, I think that, you know, at a basic level, Warnock and Ossoff are, are making the argument that if they are elected, Democrats in the Senate can can pass, you know, some co- more COVID relief, more economic relief, lower prescription drug prices, bring down the cost of health care. It's sort of these very common sense things. Ossoff in particular uh, has been talking a lot about anti-corruption bills because Purdue and Leffler um, are both very wealthy and both have had um, some interesting stock trades in the past. But yeah, it's it's like, you know, this kind of pragmatic democratic agenda versus socialism, essentially, coming from the Republicans. Something that I kind of want to get at that I think is is kind of implicit in this, but should be made more explicit is like, obviously, Georgia's runoff system is like unusual among states, right? Like the fact that, you know... Leffler and Warnock are in a runoff because Leffler primarily had to run against another Republican in November is like not a thing that, you know, that's that's not the way most states work. And it's it is it means that Democrats arguably have a better chance than they otherwise would have, at least in that race, arguably in the other race as well, because they were able to deal with a plurality system rather than having to get a majority on first run, first cut. But like the runoff system also results in people having to show up for two different elections just to get their candidate, their preferred candidate in, which Matt is something you've talked about a lot is like, 
one of the low key ways that the United States makes it very difficult for people to exercise their like democratic interests because there are all of these different elections for all of these different races. And, you know, obviously Georgia is a is one of the many states in the union that has something of a history of making changes to the electoral system to make it harder for black people to vote. So, you know, I think that that's something that that needs to kind of be addressed here. But I also kind of wonder, given, Matt, what you were saying about white turnout having increased in 2020 over 2016 and some of the kind of emerging conventional wisdom that people were even more mobilized for Donald Trump in 2020 than they were in 2016. Ella, do you think we're talking about a situation where, you know, you can generally assume that the Democratic base is less likely to turn out for like non-presidential elections and therefore it's likely to be a more Republican composition of the electorate? Or do you think that both sides actually have are going to struggle a little bit to get people to the polls for something where the president isn't on the ballot? Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting question, particularly where we are at right now with Georgia's presidential election results and the fact that Trump lost them. So like in any other year, you know, you might assume that even if the incumbent president had lost that he, you know, would go down there and campaign for Republicans and, you know, try to kind of have this message of we, you know, we still need to hold the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. But Trump is is, you know, still refusing to concede the presidential election and seems very obsessed with his own numbers in Georgia, so much so that there is now a massive feud between Trump loyalists and the very Republican and very conservative Georgia secretary of state um, who gave a kind of incredible interview to The Washington Post last night and, you know, was just like, I don't know what these people like. <laughs> I don't know, like we're doing everything legally. Like we're recounting the votes. Like, I don't know what these people want me to do. And so there, there is this really interesting, that's why I, you know, it's, it's hard to assume anything in these runoffs. And it's, it's tough to kind of go by past runoffs to, to tell us, you know, exactly what would happen because you're right. The conventional wisdom is that, you know, there might be slightly more Republican voters in Georgia and they might be, you know, Republicans might be better at mobilizing their base on low turnout elections. That's what we've seen in the past. But the fact is that that there is serious infighting happening between Trump loyalists and other Republicans in, you know, Georgia officials. It's it's kind of shocking to me that, you know, Governor Kemp is like enemy number one of of Trump aficionados right now. And so, yeah, there's it's it's very unclear whether Trump is going to come down and campaign or like try to get members of his own base in rural Georgia areas to, to turn out for Purdue and Loeffler. And it's it's unclear if, you know, Trump's name being on the ballot in 2020 spurred really high Republican turnout. But as we've seen, like in the 28 midterms, his name not being on the ballot ended up being worse for Republicans, at least in House races. So it's it's really unclear, like exactly how all of that is is going to impact things. And there is, you know, I I am a big believer in Donald Trump's pettiness. <laughs> like, there is one constant in this world. It's that, you know, if Trump <laughs> is is upset about something impacting him personally, I don't know if he is going to sort of let greater Republican political strategy supersede that, you know? You can really imagine, I don't know, like Michelle Obama, who doesn't really like this stuff, making some phone calls to help Ossoff try to keep African-American voters engaged in, in, in the runoff, something like that, because I don't know, it, it's very clearly like she doesn't love this like 
party obligation kind of stuff. But like she does it. Donald Trump, like he really doesn't care about whether or not Mitch McConnell is able to block Biden's circuit coin court appointees you know like as much as he bragged about his circuit court appointees it's like it's very clear that he doesn't actually care about the future of the judiciary this was just part of his cockamamie thing and to some extent you know it could it could be really bad for for republicans in just a a turnout psychology kind of way if the if you know one of the most visible people in the party is not engaged at all with the race while democrats are all like sincerely trying to win i mean there's also of course the fact that like it's not just that he's not engaged with the race but that he's actively engaged in sending the message that the the state of Georgia cannot be trusted to run a reliable election, which seems also bad for turnout psychology, arguably. Right. You know, there's even the fact that, like, Collins probably would not be that sad to see Leffler lose. You know, like, they they don't seem to love each other in (laughs) a really serious way. Um, You know, traditionally, that kind of infighting hurts, right? I mean, you look at the the 2008 Georgia Senate race. I, I remember this one. And it was like, technically, Democrats had a shot to win it. But the reason it went to a runoff was that the libertarian candidate got some outlandishly high share of the vote. It was like around 10 percent. So the Republican was like just under 50 and the Democrat was way below 50 percent. And Democrats didn't really know how to approach it strategically because like they had 58 eight Senate seats at that point. They were still doing a recount in Minnesota. Obama had just won this big landslide. It didn't seem like Georgia voters were all that into the Democratic candidate and like throwing national party resources into the race to be like, hey, guys, you need to like super empower our agenda. Like that seemed like it was going to backfire. So turnout crashed. They lost really, really badly. I'm sure you could have handled it better. But like I I was working at the Center for American Progress at that time. And I mean, I remember people sitting around being like, what can we do about Georgia? And like, we couldn't figure it out. There, There didn't seem to be a good answer. Whereas now, like Georgia voted for Biden. So like trying to get as many people as possible involved to say, like, this is really important. Joe Biden really wants you to vote for John Ossoff. Biden really wants to confirm his his people like Biden wants to pass his covid relief bill. It might not work, but it's it's obvious, like what you want to do, whereas the Republicans are, I, I, I don't know, at odds, I guess would be the polite way to say it. Ella, as an actual Hill reporter, I would love to know, like, how are your like, how are Senate Republicans talking about this? Like, not obviously like the Georgia Republicans being kind of one subset of this, but also, you know, what are Republicans who are currently in the Senate? Like, how are they thinking about the kind of upside of getting more seats versus the difficulty of appearing to run afoul of the president right now? Yeah, I mean, I sort of feel like it's just kind of like let Trump do his thing. And I mean, this is why, like, you know, everything that we've just been speculating about here about how Trump is going to to impact, you know, ultimately Republican turnout, while I think is a very valid question, like Republicans do have very clear messaging here, which is basically, you know, if they lose the Senate, you know, they have no you know, they they have less uh, of a say in in the legislation that goes forward. And so it is certainly, you know, like I said, you know, 
Purdue and, and folks are, are labeling these candidates as socialists. But that I feel like that is also kind of the national Republican messaging is like a Republican Senate is the only thing that stands between the U.S. and socialism, which obviously is not true. But <laughs> um, but yeah, that that is that I Republicans have their eye you know, on the ball and they have a Senate Republicans have a clear message. But the question is, what is the extent that Trump mucks that message up, basically? Is there any concern that by like not throwing all of their efforts toward mobilizing people to turn out for this January 5th runoff or even by like talking so much about the idea that the presidential election in Georgia was rigged, that they are doing any damage to Leffler and Purdue's chances? Or like, are they assuming that they can just kind of have their cake and eat it too and question the results of the November election while encouraging people to turn out for the January one? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 could be like a tough needle to thread. But yeah, ultimately, like, I I think that that Republican mobilization is, you know, it's still going to happen. They're not going to to like encourage people to sit this one out because they're, you know, calling um, those those election results into question. And I do think that like there is like a clear even though Leffler and Purdue very much need Trump's support and his base to turn out. I think that there is kind of this clear difference between you know, folks like Lindsey Graham that are actively like calling the results into question versus like other, you know, McConnell, I feel like hasn't really said a lot on this, but he's certainly not like stoking. He's not trying to stoke these fears, I feel like. All right. Um, I think let's, let's wrap it up there. Take take our second break and, and do our white paper. In U.S. working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So this week's white paper is called Media, Pulpit, and Populist Persuasion, Evidence from Father Coughlin. Uh, It's from Tianyi Wang of the University of Pittsburgh. And the paper uses... uh, Father Coughlin was a very popular and populist radio host uh, who, you know, was a Catholic priest, but who, especially during the 1930s, turned to social and economic commentary because of his status as like the most popular radio commentator of the day. The availability of his sermons or like secular sermons was broadly distributed through like through a network of radio stations that had agreed to carry them. So this paper looks at these signal strength of the stations that were carrying Father Coughlin commentary predicts which areas of the country would have been able to hear that commentary and uses it it looks at how those areas changed in their support for FDR when Father Coughlin himself turned against FDR in the 20 in in the 1936 election looks at the prevalence of anti-Semitism in those communities through whether they had chapters of the German American Bund uh, how they whether they were uh, supportive of war bonds during World War II and like long-term anti-Semitic attitudes and finds that in all of these regards having 
access to or exposure to the commentary of Father Coughlin did make it more likely that people adopted these right-wing populist views that that Coughlin was pushing. Uh, The extent of the effect varies. He finds that for every standard deviation of increase, uh, likelihood that they were able to listen to Father Coughlin, that there was a like two or three percentage uh, point shift in the vote against FDR compared to places that wouldn't have been able to listen to those, uh, but finds much more substantial changes, differences in the German-American Bund and war bonds differences, which suggests pretty strongly that the attitudes towards whether it was a good idea to get involved in World War II and who, you know, whether whether the U.S. was on the right side of that fight were strongly, in, and, you know, not just in how people thought of those issues, but whether they were willing to, like, donate time and money uh, either to the war effort or to support for, you know, German-American relations in opposition to the war uh, were strongly influenced by this one very charismatic popular figure. Uh, it's a really, it's an interesting use of data. There isn't hard radio data on like, yes, this household could receive, you know, these radio signals. So it's an interesting way of combining these kind of predictive models of what a 50 kilowatt signal would have looked like uh, and some to- like topographical analysis with a very relevant question of, you know, what are the when a when a charismatic leader has the ability to directly reach his followers through a mass medium, how persistent is that in changing their views? It's reminding me of a, a political scientist I know, and he was um criticizing himself and and his colleagues for how they do in a more contemporary era sort of media effect type stuff. Cause he was saying it's like it's easy to fire up Lexus Nexus and see what the Wall Street Journal editorials say, but it would be really annoying to do a content analysis of right-wing talk radio. So it tends to be, it's not that like people don't know that Rush Limbaugh is an important person, but it's, you know, not, it's not studied because it's it's hard to study. Um, and this was an interesting one where it's um, it's sort of broad enough that like we generally know what this guy's show was about and how it was distinctive from other things. So you can just look at, you know, where could people get it? We often get interesting studies from these moments of technological transition. Like there's good papers about the rollout of Fox News across the country because now it's on every cable system. But when it was new, it wasn't. So there's like a period of several years in which you can you can instrument it. I mean, now I'm sure there's some pockets of the United States where you can't get Rush Limbaugh on the radio. But like our the radio stations are pretty good right now. But but in the 30s, the technology was was janky enough that you can study in this way. What's interesting, you never know if people are just desk drawing their null effects, but It seems to me that every time we have an episode like this, the Fox News rollout, Sinclair Broadcasting's acquisition of new local radio chains, now this thing about Coughlin in the 30s, it does show that mass media is important to politics, which I feel like is both obvious, but also something that those of us who work in the mass media, I think, sometimes shy away from saying like in in an interesting way like journalists don't want to say our work doesn't matter but like also don't want to say that our work is driving the election outcomes and that like we are personally responsible for what people do because i i think we don't think of ourselves as like political operative you know like, like we don't want the responsibility for who wins house races but what we do you know it it seems like it matters 
Right. I mean, it, it's very easy to turn this into just kind of a paralyzing observer effect, right? Like, I, I kind of understand why it's more convenient for us as journalists to, like, have a strategic blind spot here than to be constantly torn between our, like, ethical obligation and the reason that we got into this industry being to, like, describe what is going on and the knowledge that by describing it, we are changing it. One of the other things that I think is, like, kind of a difficult question to answer, but I, as I was reading the paper, I was just, like, so struck by... I guess just sort of the more like, I don't know if I want to say like centralized news sources, news sources, but basically just like the fact that like people would get their news from like the radio or like, you know, a newspaper or a couple of newspapers, whereas now there's just so much to choose from, even if, you know, you're just like limiting yourself to mass media and not like social media or like, you know, weird websites out there that people, you know, kind of can can choose whatever they want. And so I've I, I like was just thinking about that last night. And again, I just like I have no idea how you could answer that question. But I was. Yeah. Well, the particularly interesting thing about that is that and this is something that like I didn't know enough about Father Coughlin to know about to, to know prior to reading the kind of like historical background section of this paper. But the dude's career essentially ended because the Association of Broadcasters decided to self-regulate and create a rule that was facially not about Father Coughlin, but in practice prevented radio stations from being, for, like, like radio stations in holding themselves to that rule said to, you know, Coughlin or Coughlin Enterprises or whatever, like, sorry, we can't c- carry your show anymore. And the you know, that is itself Ella, a, pro- a product of the kind of centralization you're talking about. But it's also a product, Matt, of mass media understanding that they did have a key political influence, it, it, at least in the kind of gatekeeper function of we can broadcast these views or we can choose to avoid doing so. And, you know, I think that it's it would be very tempting to say like, oh, this demonstrates that if you just starve people of platforms, they're not, you know, they won't have as much influence. But like, Ella, because of what you were talking about with the proliferation of media outlets, with the increased, you know, kind of direct to consumer quality of social media, it's pretty obvious that you couldn't get the equivalent of the National Association of Broadcasters to like, get a single, take a single person from being arguably the most influential media personality in America to just being persona non grata. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think it's important, you know, I think if you want to understand mid 20th century American history, the fact that you had these incredibly popular broadcast platforms that had a narrow number of choke points and that they were used right starting in the in the you know m- late 1930s and through to the mid 1980s extreme opinions were strangled uh, in broadcast media. Like, obviously, at the height of the civil rights movement, you could have had a popular television show that was about how the segregationists were correct. But like, nobody had a show like that, right? Even if but there were three networks, right? So even if it was only a third of the population agreed with that viewpoint, like there would have been a good market for it. But none of the networks put something like that on. And there was no pro-communist show, right? Like you weren't, there was a mix of formal and informal rules, but like you couldn't deviate from the bipartisan Cold War consensus. 
And there were a lot of like problems with that. You know, you read Noam Chomsky's old books. Um, that's, you know, that's the real manufacturing consent era in which you can just cover up things that the government does that are, that are bad. Uh, but also a lot of constructive things happened in American politics and society during that era. And today it's like you can't do it. Like you can't stop people from publishing Q content. Oh, you can. I mean, and to some extent you do, but it it pops up elsewhere on, on the internet. There's no equivalent to being driven off the radio. I mean, the the other thing that I kind of wanted to point out is like, I was tempted initially in reading this paper to make a connection. There, There is some historical analysis of radio as a technological innovation and the rise of fascism, um, both in Europe in the 1930s and then the use of radio in the Rwandan genocide in the 1990s. And there is a consensus that like the centralizing power of mass media is very good for totalitarian regimes to broadcast pop- propaganda and, you know, control public opinion. And I was I was initially tempted to kind of to, you know, because of the sub because like Father Coughlin's views were were not necessarily fascist, but like certainly aligned in the direction of sympathy for Europe's fascist governments that like, oh, there is something about radio that is particularly sympathetic to this kind of viewpoint. And I don't think that that's fair you know, on reading it, I don't think that's what's going on at all, because there's a very important difference, obviously, as we've been discussing between like being a government propaganda outlet and being just like some dude who if your stations decide to drop you, you're dropped. But I think that it's worth kind of pointing out that that is the downside of centralized media apparatus isn't just the kind of manufacturing consent thing we had in America, but that it's much more vulnerable to state takeover and being used, you know, solely as propaganda rather than as an independent or enlightening media at all. All right. Well, you can't you can't take the weeds off the air. So we will we will keep bringing the truth to you. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Ella, for joining us. I'm sure that we will have you back uh, soon again. Talk about what's what's happening in the in the legislature as as things shape up. Um, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will be back on Friday with a continuation of the next four years series. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.